Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Lorgia Garcia-Pena. She's a writer, activist, and scholar who specializes in Latinx studies with a focus on Black Latinx. I hope I said that one correctly. Her work is concerned with the ways in which anti-Blackness and xenophobia intersect the global North, producing categories of exclusion that lead to violence and erasure. Through her writing and teaching, she insists on highlighting the knowledge, cultural, social, and political contributions of people who've been silenced from traditional archives. She's the author of several award-winning books, and her most recent work is Community as Rebellion, and we'll actually be spending most of our time on that work. Currently, she serves as the Mellon Professor and Chair of the Department in Studies of Race, Colonialism, and Diaspora at Tufts University. And it's a pleasure to welcome you to the deep dive. How are you? Pleasure is all of mine. Thank you. I am doing well. You know, I have to say that the bio that was provided to me was actually much longer and more in-depth than what I took out of it. And it's always a challenge for me because I don't want to spend all of our time reading bios, but the breadth and depth of your scholarship, the many places it has been used and shown up is exemplary. So despite the fact that I shortened it, <laughs> I want to make sure that our, our our listeners are aware of just how long you have been doing this work and just how impactful your your contributions have been in the face of, I would say, at the least adversarial conditions, maybe more explicitly stated, active violence. So I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. This has been circled and underlined on my calendar for quite a while. <laughs> um, so Community as Rebellion, I was, I was remarking to you before we started recording how powerful I thought the book was, is. And I, I want to really start at the beginning, in that you have course requirements that are are pretty much on the very first page. And I think someone who is fairly well-read, to put it mildly, I've never seen that before. <laughs> so, you know, leading, you know, open heart and, and open mind was was one of the first things that you highlighted. And it's it's a phrase that I use all the time. Why was that important for you to start the book in the way that you did? You know, the, this book is it's really important to me because it, it marks in many ways a, a, a departure or a shift from, from some of my other writing, which has been more academic. I've always um, written public-facing work, mostly short articles and whatnot. But this book, I began to write it not as a book. I was writing a letter to my students, and it just got longer <laughs> and longer. And there is there's a lot of it that is coming from my own heart and my own experiences, lived experiences. So I felt really strongly that to really get the most out of the book, you have to come in with the same kind of sensitivity. You have to come in thinking, this is not just an academic book. This is not just about teaching. This is also about how do you 
live your life as a whole human uh, in community? How do you fight all of the things that we are trying to fight? Well, some of us are trying to fight against you know, racism, white supremacy, and colonialism, and all the isms that are, have been destroying us for centuries without losing your, your heart, without disappearing yourself. And so it was really important for me that as people entered this book, they understood that I was opening an important part of me that is typically guarded for writers and scholars. And that I was, I think it was fair to ask readers to, to come in with the same openness. And in all fairness, that, that's what I found. Just yesterday, I did a, a talk on the book and most of the most of the talks and conversations I have with with folks around, and and I can tell you more about how surprising has been the the wide readership of this book for me. But without an exception, there's always someone who cries, or someone who says, "On page 22, when I read this phrase, I thought she sees me." And I I don't think that's possible when you're not allowing your vulnerability to come through. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of me in this book, and some of it is hard, but I think uh, most of it it's with the intention of speaking to each other's hearts in many ways. You know, a lot of what you said is so important because this this phrase I, I jotted down in my notes. Like I told you, as I, as I'm going through this, I'm going to be adding notes on notes <laughs> on notes. And you said this notion of disappearing yourself. And that that really struck a chord with me because there there is a tendency in spaces that are challenging all the isms that you highlighted to, as you navigate through the, the pain of these things, the hurt of these things, there's like a lot of anger in these spaces. And I'm all for anger, right? So I'm just making it clear that I'm I'm not making this argument that those who are grieved have to that anger is not a legitimate emotion in the face of systemic violence. I, I think it it is. But anger can also harden us in a way that makes it hard to build community, right? So these are these are paradoxes that that I'm I try to figure out every day, right? Like how do you connect to and build with folks when you don't have perfect alignment, when there is anger, hurt, and, and all the things that go along with it, and in, and in the face of such incredible obstacles, right? So the book does a lot, I think, to address some of those intricacies. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you worked through that and how you're working through that. You know, this, this comment you made about disappearing, for a lot of us who come from minoritized communities, working class, immigrant black, you know, name it, and who are in in professions that are predominantly white, upper middle class, and whatnot, there is a almost a requirement to enter those spaces, even within um, this project of diversity and inclusion that you know we've been sort of emerged in this country for a good forty years. There is a requirement that you enter that space as a person of color, as a minoritized person, erasing all of that, right? It's, it's almost as if we want your picture. We want to show that you are, quote unquote, diverse for our project, but we also want you to leave all that behind, right? We want you to leave all of those experiences behind. We don't want any of those experiences that make who you are uh, to influence how you work and how you move in your profession. 
And that is incredibly violent. That is an impossible demand. And yet, a lot of us go into these professions and we try to do that. We try to perform whiteness in our brown skin. You know, we try to play the game as is proposed to us. And I think that ends up creating so much pain and so much hurt and so much invisibility and so much inability to connect with others. So I think what, what's helped me in, in part, it has been the fact that I just can't. I'm unable to. I don't have the ability to mute where I come from and who I am. Uh, in great part because the work I do, I do it not in spite of, but because of where I come from. I got to academic research and writing because I'm from Trenton, New Jersey, a city that, like many cities in the U.S., has been forgotten by the states and is a predominantly Black city, predominantly immigrant, poor. Went to a high school that had all kinds of issues and where we were told constantly that college was not an option. And so coming from those experiences and entering academia, I did so because I wanted to see myself in those books, because I've never had a professor or a teacher that came from where I came from. And so to me, the way in which I enter these communities, the way in which I enter these spaces is with all of that, you know, as big as that baggage is, with a lot of sincerity about where I come from and what, what I'm trying to do. And that leads to community, because clearly my experience is shared. Of course, we all have specificities, right? Our, our families and whatnot. But the experience of entering these spaces as minoritized, working class, first gen people, it's not unique. And verbalizing that and putting your, your whole self front and center, if you will, for me has been key for survival. It is how I've connected with students. It is how I've connected with with other people. But you're right that there is a lot of hurt and that there is a lot of anger. And sometimes there that hurt and that anger can be really important for political action. Mm-hmm. So tapping into that is also important. There are moments in which I've been raging and I've let that rage show. I think what I try to share, especially with my students, is how do we how do we go beyond that? How what do we do next? And how do we balance the work that we have to do inside or within the institutions that are hurting us with the spaces outside that we need to create in order to sustain us. Because no one can keep the battle going 24-7. That's how you get burned out. That's how you die, right? Inside, outside, that's how your body breaks. So there needs to be a balance of this is the work, this is the fighting, this is the anger, this is the stuff that I have to do to change the system. But then there is also this is who sustained me. This is how I'm sustained. These are the people. These are the people that see me. This is my tribe. And when we don't have both, I think that's when that's when it's that's when it becomes impossible, right? Not just to survive, but to thrive in these environments. And the, a lot of what I'm trying to do with with the book is to remind us to create these communities that would sustain us, that would see us, that would help us be in enjoy because we we are hurting we are angry and we rightly so because we're still living the afterlives of slavery so of course we have to be angry because we're seeing it every day it's not gone but we also need to cultivate our joy 
we also need to take care of our bodies, our souls, our people. And that's that's key for the struggle too. Absolutely. And you know, you you mentioned, and I'm I'm glad you said the word survival because I jotted down the word survival techniques as you were as you were sharing kind of the, a little bit of the journey, because I, I was reflecting on my own journey, which is not an academic one, but a professional one. But not that academics aren't professional, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to have listeners like, what do you mean? Back? You know, like, so I'm like preparing that, like, don't, don't miss, don't misinterpret the words. I'm just making a distinction of those who pursued a professional course of academia versus those who pursued corporate life. Right. And that journey begins when you're in school, right. With a conditioning that starts to happen from both your peers, from your professors, from your parents, particularly immigrant parents, where it's all about getting the better job, doing better than we did, you know, the the hopes and dreams of the family all rest on you. I have so much to say about that. <laughs> and um and so I I think about the lessons that that I internalize, and I know many folks probably in my generation internalize, you know, I'm a solid Gen X kid, kind of basically suck it up, you know, don't complain, be a team player, just keep your head down and work, and you will be rewarded with the whatever the thing is, right? Like you'll get the better job, you'll get the, you know, it is a lot of, well, at least for my parents, right? So I'm going to speak for my parents, not throwing them under the bus. I love my parents, but they were like, no one likes work. Like, the fuck are you complaining about? <laughs> right? Like, so you have this great job, you're making all this money, just shut up, get paid. They're like, you think we like to work? You know, when when we were eight years old, we were in the mango fields, you know, like the whole, <laughs> the whole thing, right? You're sitting in a cushy office, like, right? What do you have to complain about, right? Is anybody hitting you with a- Have you met my parents? <laughs> Sounds like you met my parents. Yeah. Has anybody anybody hitting you with a bamboo stick, <laughs> right? Like a tamarind rod? You're like, what? You know? So, but all of that toughness, like all of those lessons, I think they served us and me well, but they also, I think, made it harder for us, me, to know when to say enough's enough, right? Because you're taught to be tough. You're taught to suffer in silence, which I think makes it harder to do the things you're describing, right? Like when I was sitting on a trading desk at Goldman Sachs, there was nobody else to say, hey, this shit sucks, right? And the, and the two other dudes, Black dudes that were on the desk were kind of like, it sucks for us too, right? So what? <laughs> this is, it's the sucking becomes like oxygen. You just assume it's going to be this way. So what the hell, right? So I'm, that was long-winded, but I'm, what I'm trying to capture is like these things that are survival techniques, I think sometimes could make it difficult to form community, right? So I'm curious your reflections and thoughts on that. Yeah. Being a first-generation American or being a first-generation college student or, you know, you name it, especially when you have working parents or immigrant parents or both. It's really tricky because there's a lot of guilt that we experience. And I hear this a lot from, from other faculty. They're like, I, I don't feel like I can complain about what is happening to me on campus when I see that my mom is um, 
working uh, two shifts at a factory, you know, or my dad is standing you know, for 12 hours as a server. You know, I, what I do, it's nothing compared to that. And so there's a lot of shame and guilt that we feel because we, we think we're the ones who made it, right? We, we made it. And we have this great office jobs where we're not standing 12 hour shifts. And we think, well, what am I complaining about? It's so much better than it was for the generation before. And that mentality really, you know, keeps us from sometimes speaking up. There's also the, the feeling of, well, I should be grateful, right? That this space has been given to me. I should be grateful that I am not in a field uh, picking mangoes or, or whatever. And and then you look around and you see the other two people <laughs> that look like you, indeed being very grateful. And I had this experience in 2019 where uh, my office door on campus was decorated with racial and misogyny slurs. And it was really, it was really awful because I was coming into campus with a student, you know, we're about to have a meeting and she sees this too. And it was, it was shocking. And I was, you know, it took me a little while to process. I just kind of went through the motions of like, suck it up and teach your class and meet with your student. And I, I did that. And the next day I reached out to, to another professor who also is Caribbean and Latina. And I told her, you know, I'm, I'm finding a complaint. This happened to me. And she said, oh, this has happened to me a couple of times. And I said, what did you do? And she's like, nothing. It's just, it's just part of what we go through. I mean, there's no point in complaining. They're just going to say that you're complaining. And I don't know what was more devastating for me. If having my door, you know, dealing with a hate crime in my office or hearing from my senior colleague that I was hoping you know, would be offering some advice as to how to cope, how to deal, how to confront this, saying, this is just what we do. You know, this is just how we live and the conformity of it. And again, I think that comes in very much from, that comes very much from this, this sort of idea of inclusion, you know, and which I, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I don't want to be included. Do not include me in anything. I want to be centered. Because the inclusion means that there is something going on already. And you're, you're, you know, you come from a Caribbean family too. So you'll get this image of like, you know, it's Christmas dinner or, you know, somebody's birthday or Mother's Day or whatever. And they set the table and you're all sitting down. But whoever arrived late is going to get like a little stool or a little chair on that little edge corner. And you can't even cut your turkey because you got no space, you know, but you showed up late and you weren't part of the story. So we sort of included you, right? Well, I don't want that for my life. I don't want to be just this extra thing that it's added to a project that was never intended to be for people like me. And I think there is a lot of conformity going around because we have internalized that being included is enough. And I would like us to invite, I would like to invite us to think that being included is actually violent because it means that no one is thinking about the fact that all of these systems, education, you, you name it, all of the systems, the nation, were created to exclude us on purpose, right? If you think about the way in which the, the US nation was formed, they did not abolish slavery. How did they get away with that? And they did, right? They did. They created a whole nation that is recognized historically and we celebrate this holiday, but a big part of, of that nation was not considered full human. And so buying into this project of inclusion 
automatically um, makes us believe that that's all we deserve and that this is just how it is. And we need to just suck it up because we're so lucky that we even have this little corner edge table where we can, you know, have a plate of food. And my invitation is to, to basically reject that and think about abolition instead rather than inclusion and not think about reform because reforming doesn't work. It, we need to start over. And the only way we fix this is by centering. We have to center the lives of the people that have been purposely excluded from all of the systems. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And and these are like having the language of abolition is is critical because I find that it forces us to ask and confront very difficult questions, right? In in a way that you know, because a lot of my work is in insights and 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 foresight work, and I, I laugh at the field oftentimes because they can imagine imagine quote unquote the most ridiculous things, right? You know, going to Mars and all the, all these really far fetched things, but can't imagine not having police, right? Like it's like <laughs> we can we can imagine like literally the most ridiculous things, right? Things like I read them and I'm like, you can't be serious. Right, like you're gonna download human consciousness into a machine and AI, and I'm like, all of this stuff is dumb, <laughs> right? Like it's like I know people are really impressed with this stuff, but I, I'm always on the record as using very plain language that like 90% of the shit is just fucking stupid, right? Chat, GPT, all of it's dumb, right? But that's easier for people to grapple with and imagine than it is to have create a society that is truly equitable, right? Like that's beyond the pale. So I offer that because there was a, another story in, in the book where you, I'm not going to get, I don't remember the timing of it. You will remember the timing of it far better than me, but there was a woman, I believe it was, who confronted you about you having take a job that they were up for and they didn't get the job. You got the job, but I think you were leaving the job and they were mad that you were leaving the job, right? Because they could have had that job, right? I, I'm, I'm summarizing, right? But that was somewhat the confrontation. And that story really struck me because it emphasized that notion of there being one. And you go to, you have a whole section about this. So when I said at the beginning, we could, we could spend a whole section, a whole show, just talking about this notion of the one, right? For those who might be fans of the movie Highlander, that was like a big part of it, right? There can only be one Highlander, right? So from the moment I saw that movie in late, late 80s or whatever it was, I always remember that, right? Because it seemed like that was the model for my corporate life. There could only be one. And the forces aligned ensuring that sometimes look like us, right? So when, when I read that particular anecdote, it really struck me because I remember the times in my life and career where the people who were making sure that there was just one looked like me, right? So they internalized the, the predominant culture and message so much that they were willing to be enforcers for it. So I was, I'm curious about this concept of the one, that particular anecdote, and, and just reflections on the colonial mindset that makes us enforcers of it. Yeah. You know, when we think about uh, co-creating community as you know, people of color, there's so many obstacles external. But for me, the, the worst and 
the most heartbreaking and the most difficult is the, that internalized logic of there can only be one of us. That is the message that we're receiving. For those of us in academia, especially those of us who are in sort of elite universities, they're, they're going to want to have just one of us, right? And, and, and that being the one which I was at Harvard for many years also comes side, you know, with the, the side kick of, you know, a lot of violence, but also it's, I describe it as an abusive relationship, you know, where on, on the one hand you're receiving adulation. Oh, you're the first. I hate that. You're the first ex, you know, you're the first Latina, you're the first woman, you're the first black person to occupy this position and we should be celebrating it. And it's, it's 2023. We shouldn't be celebrating that. We should be calling it out and enforcing institutions to fix it because we should not be celebrating. Every time I hear we're celebrating the first Black woman to be X, I'm like, oh, how? How is this still happening, right? But we've internalized that. And that's, that's something that I'm finding globally, not just in the U.S. We've internalized that as, uh, as a story of success. And we've also internalized it as something that we do right? I got here, you know, by pulling my own bootstraps because I worked so hard, like my parents told me to, and therefore that's why I got this amazing job. And that's why I am the VP or of whatever. When in reality, no, you are there because of everything that happened before you and all the people that maybe didn't get the job or got it before you or fought for this position. And what we should be doing is creating space so that you're not the only one, because being the only one is violent and it's hurtful. So because I was in, in, in an elite institution, an institution that has a lot of visibility, and because I was the first of many things, first Dominicana, the first you know, Black woman, the first Latina in, in this position, there were a lot of eyes on me, and I kept hearing that uh, a lot. And what was most heartbreaking or surprising was how many people were invested in me being the only one and then how many people were waiting you know people that look like me for me not to be the ones that they could be and that was really heartbreaking and surprising and so this this anecdote that I talk about in the book I had I had just given a talk at a conference and this is the same year that I took my position at Harvard three years after having taken a position at the University of Georgia. Mind you, when you are applying for a tenure track position, which is kind of the holy grail in academia, you know, people there are hundreds of applications for one job. It's very, very uh, competitive. So it, it's very likely that there are you know, 99 other people that apply for that position, just like I applied for others. And so it was really surprising to have someone who looked like me come to me after a talk and just with so much anger demand something of me that they should have been demanding of the institutions, right? Seeing me as competition that needed to be eliminated rather than saying, oh my God, it's terrible that they're only hiring one person or it's terrible that there can only be one of us. So there's there's a way in which we have internalized this. And you're right, within our institutions, we see people protecting, protecting themselves, right? As the one, because they know that there can only be one rather than fighting against that system and insisting that no, in fact, there can be many of us. So it's really, it's really tricky. And it's, it's one of the, the, I guess, the biggest warnings I have in the book. How do we, as, you know, professionals, as scholars, how do we push against this logic 
and avoid it's very easy to fall into it and avoid the the allure right of being the one yeah because it comes with our words sometimes it comes with you know recognition and it can feel good to your ego right of course you get the best meats and cheeses exactly <laughs> And people are calling you a star and people are saying things to you and you're like, well, you know, if they hire another Dominicana, well, maybe that's not going to happen to me. Right. And so getting into that mindset is terrible. It's dangerous. It is isolating. It does not good to our common struggles. And so reminding ourselves that when you find yourself in a position of being the one, it is not a source of pride. You should not be proud of that. You should be fighting that. You should be calling that out. You should be questioning that. That's really, really critical. And it's and it's also a, a precarious place to be, right? Because the the tide can turn at at any moment. And it's it's I found it's not a today's hero is tomorrow's scapegoat. Absolutely. <laughs> when, when things start to go wrong. And that could happen within the same day, right? So that you know, I had days that were so violent and confusing uh, when I was working at Harvard, where in like in the morning, I would get a teaching award. And in the afternoon, I would, I would be dealing with, with police violence on campus where they would not let me into my office because I didn't look like a professor on the same day. So, you know, if, you, if your life looks like that, that's right. Like, this is not what you want. And this is not what we should be striving for. We should be striving for critical mass of folks doing this work because there there is no way to change anything if it's just one of you. It's impossible. All, all that you're going to be able to change is your life and perhaps not for the better. And it also reinforces this weird idea of like credentialing. I know I, I use a lot of stark examples, but it's it's like when you read a, about when, you know, enslaved folks used to have like the slave pass, right? Where they can move from one place to another without a white person, as long as they had this piece of paper, right? And I feel like so so many of us are looking to add like a slave pass that's just an, an all-encompassing slave pass, right? Like it could be my ID that, you know, my old Goldman ID got me into the building, right? It got me through security, you know, even having a business card, says to someone who I am, right? It credentials me in a world that is constantly looking to assess to what degree I really belong here, right? And we list these things in order to prove it. Well, of course I belong in this room because I did, you know, the things, <laughs> right? And it's hard, right? Because I've seen the doors open because of doing that, right? Even if they don't open that wide, so I don't know how we, short of like Nat Turnering this whole situation, right, <laughs> which I'm completely in favor of, how do we really go through this sort of twisted logic, right? Because we we live in it so, so pervasively. You know, I don't know if we have an answer. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm hoping that you're going to provide <laughs> me with one. I, I, you know, I don't know if we have an answer either, but there are definitely strategies. Uh, that can give us, if not a solution, small victories, I think. On the one hand, you know, remembering that, you know, that business card that you're leveraging or, you know, that list of reading out your CV or whatever in those spaces to justify your belonging also has a flip side. You're saying I belong because of this. 
Therefore, everybody else who looks like me and doesn't have this doesn't belong, and that's dangerous. So reminding yourself that when you are performing those acts, you're also enforcing right this logic of you're exceptional, therefore you're allowed. The rest of you all people, not really, just you. And so resisting that and reminding people that no, you you belong and other people also belong. And the only reason why they're not there is because they haven't had the opportunities you had and et cetera. Right. So that that that's a reminder. I'm a big fan of leveraging, leveraging what you have to make space for others. So for me, for example, when invited to serve as the you know the resident woman of coloring ex committee, which I know what they're doing, you know, they look stupid if they have a search for a, uh, a position in, I don't know, Black studies and the entire committee is white. So they need me there, even though they're not verbalizing it. So leveraging those spaces to, to get what is needed, not what you need for yourself, but what is needed for the community that you're trying to co-create. And that is difficult to do, right? Because we are in a, in a society and a structure that has taught us to, be, to, to center the self and the self-success. And this is how we're in this mess, you know? So the logic of returning to or striving to think about a collective requires a lot of discipline and some some self-sacrifices of not always getting the, the, the one thing that you want, but maybe getting something that would enable others to grow, that would create a space for you to have colleagues, for example, in your that, that think like you and that can allow you to build that, that is worth more than an extra $10,000 or whatever it is that they're going to throw at you in your salary, which most of it is going to go to taxes anyways. So thinking strategically, right, about, you know, how do you leverage these institutions in this moment? Most of them need us more than we need them. And we just don't see it. We, we just don't see it. I, I want to use that as an as an opportunity to to also because you we talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It came up, right? The word inclusion came up, and I, I have down on my notes here the failure of DEI question mark, right? Um, so that's my prompt that already going into it that DEI has been a a, a stunning failure. And when I read 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 through the book, there's so many instances where the DEI machine. Let's that's my language, right? Like I'm just because I'm trying to capture all of it in one big bucket, right? So the DEI machine is so often the buttress against real change, right? And so as you were as you were talking about like more thinking more communally, getting away from this notion of the self, it seemed like DEI encompasses all of those things, right? Like it's it's celebratory of the exceptional to whatever degree we are defining that. And it, it feels like that's another thing to dismantle in, in light of this search for community, because I often don't see real community in there, right? This this notion of like corporate ERGs and all this kind of stuff, it just seems like they just asking folks to do more work. <laughs> They're asking folks that look like us to do more work. Right. And yeah. to and to justify language. Right. And, and then diversity and inclusion uh, is being replaced now with at least in academia with words like anti-racist or decolonial. So it's just about performative rhetoric that does not actually do. We don't need to have any more studies 
about inequality in education, for example. We, we really don't. We, we, it's very, very simple answer. You know, you want to have diversity? Well, teach our histories. Hire faculty that come from these experiences and that study it. You know, the, to me, the, the biggest example of this failure is ethnic studies. You have people fighting for ethnic studies for more than half a century. You have a history of ethnic studies departments existing in the West Coast of this country for more than half a century. In the East Coast, we're still debating, debating whether it is uh, feasible to have ethnic studies departments. While at the same time saying, we have a problem with diversity, what can we do? And spending millions of dollars in hiring experts that are going to come and create committees that are going to write really long documents that nobody's going to read or put into action. And we've seen this. We've seen this movie. It ends badly. Why do we need to see the sequel? It's, it's unnecessary. But also, like you said, it just duplicates labor and it keeps us busy. So I, I personally do not serve on any DEI <laughs> committees. I warn my junior faculty colleagues not to do it either. Sometimes you can't escape it. Sometimes you don't have a say. And I understand that not everyone has the same ability, right, to, to say no in their job. So the boss telling you to do this, you sometimes have to do it. So what I what I remind people is when you find yourself in this in these spaces, when you find yourself doing this work, this is when it's an important when it's important to leverage. Leverage your service. Make sure that you are getting what you need and that you are using the resource and the space that it's being imposed on you to do good that you want. And so a lot of us have used sort of DEI money to do all things that we want to do in the community because that is the resource that's available to us. So getting resourceful, right, and using what's there to do something else, to do abolition work instead and calling it whatever they want us to call it. But it is it, it is failed. And, you know, it, it, it has failed. It has failed. It has failed us. It has not done what it was supposed to do. It has not led to a more just, racially inclusive society. No, we're still we're still dealing with the same issues. We're still experiencing the same violence, and we're doing so because we're not willing to restructure the systems. So, take academia for example, which is where I live. Right, universities were created to educate white men, and not just white men, but the sons of colonizers, people who owned enslaved humans. And they were built on stolen land by enslaved labor. And then the the different departments, different disciplines that were created when the universities were created in this continent were all coming from European knowledge. What was assumed to be worth knowing was the stuff that white men wrote. So this is at the foundation of our educational system still. The fact that we have to fight for Black studies, for Latinx studies, for Asian American studies, for indigenous studies where universities are reading land acknowledgements is incredible. It's it's just hypocritical of this whole attempt to decolonize, to be anti-racist, to be inclusive. If you're unwilling as an institution of learning and teaching to teach uh, the knowledge, the philosophy, the history, the geographies, the literature of the majority of the people in the world because it's unworthy to you, it's not good enough, that tells you that this project is 
has failed, has failed all of us. And we need to be doing something else. The, the, the university academia as it is needs to be abolished and we need to start over. And, and this is foundational work, right? Because what we learn, what is put in front of us from the time we start learning, right? As important informs every decision that we make going forward, right? And there's a, a piece as of the moment we're recording this. There's a piece today in The New Yorker about the death of English studies, right? Or it might have been humanities. I forgot the title, but it's basically saying that the the number of students that are taking humanities type courses, English, what have you, is steadily declining as more and more students are taking like computer science and data science, all this kind of stuff in pursuit of jobs, right? So that's kind of the connection. And, you know, I, I, I read through the article real quick and I'm like, yeah, I could see that, right? Because what people are being told is important to them is getting a job and getting a job increasingly looks like a narrower amount of skills. And those skills are what these people are considered to be technical, mm-hmm. right? Or scientific. And those things that don't fall under that, that rubric are less important. But those so-called less important things are the things that teach us about ourselves, right? They're the ones that that show us the, the legacy of a country like the United States that has the foundational story that you've just shared with us. But if you don't ever learn that story, you will move in the world thinking that it is okay to have just the one, right? Because your history will tell you like, look, we made all this. We being white people made all this. We're better at this shit anyway. And those who've kind of been sprinkled throughout the historical trail are the exceptional ones, Mm -hmm. right? So when you go into your work environment and you don't see other Latinos, you don't see Latinos, you don't see Black people, you don't see women, that's normal, right? Because everything you've been taught is like, eh, isn't this kind of the way it's supposed to be? Yeah. And and that's one of my main critiques of DEI, right? Is that it reinforces that exceptional story and that exceptional story only makes sense if you're taught it, you know? So I think the things that you're pushing against and rebelling against are actually the only way all of this works. And <laughs> the more the story is told about the legacy of these institutions, the less likely the sort of American story can still exist. Mm -hmm. It's hard to break all that down, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, we we live in a moment in which, you know, everybody wants a Tesla and, you know, we we just don't really, we're not valuing as a society human creations outside of tech. And all of our investments has been in that. And I find that really dangerous. If we no longer think that there is a value to art and to, you know, to poetry, to to human knowledge, that's really dangerous because that is how we have connected over the centuries. And if we are taught from kindergarten to PhD that what is important is what white men have written, have painted, have created, and everything else is folklore that you learn if you want to, that it's not required knowledge, that it won't add anything to you. You're you're sending a message to everyone that we matter less and that we are not thinkers, that we don't produce knowledge, that we can consume it, but we don't produce it. 
And that's just simply false. You know, our archives, academia, our books, our histories are all projects of silencing, active silencing, active exclusion on purpose of our knowledge of the ways in which we have understand the world. When you when you take a philosophy class, how many times have you taken a philosophy class where you read philosophy that comes from Africa? No. Most of the philosophy, most of what you read comes from, you know, Germany or France. And if you're lucky and have a progressive teacher, you might have some East Asian philosophy. And that's it, right? So we have been trained to believe that the global South and people who, who trace their lineage to the global South have nothing to offer the world except for what can be extracted in terms of products, you know, coffee, chocolate, whatnot. And we, even for that labor, right? And even for that, we need white men to tell us how to do it. And that's, that's really troublesome. And for me, that universities are not making this studies center to correct hundreds of years of damage. It's really troublesome. And, you know, there's a, there's an early part in, in the book where you talk about, you know, your, your family, cause you, you have this, this wonderful, well, it's painful story about your hair, but it's, it's, when I say it's wonderful, it was really interesting to read it <laughs> and, um, because it, it reminded me of the movie Crooklyn in Spike Lee's movie where like the young woman protagonist, she goes down South to visit some family and it's the first time she gets her hair straightened. And if this was like a catastrophic moment in the film, but it, it also brings me back to when I was a kid with my sister and, you know, again, West Indian family having like, this is back in the day, they had like a straightening comb, like this big, iron like this was like a, a comb made out of like cast iron pot shit yeah right and and they would put it on the on the the stove burner to heat it up and i remember like the smell of that like what that meant to me that day was like oh fuck my sister's gonna hurt she's getting her hair done right like even as a young kid because i could smell that iron right and then all the ensuing catastrophe of of <laughs> of having this done right as, as a male a younger male was not part of my hair journey right but i recognized it very early on and so when i was reading your hair story and your hair is rebellion it, it took me back to that moment in my childhood moments in my childhood and then also the movie crooklyn that kind of showed this and from pop culture but what stuck out and, and what I want to bring in this moment is you talked about how your family were like, oh, you were born to be a rebel. And then you were like, actually, I was nurtured in this. And I want to connect that to, again, this idea of only being the one and how our knowledge is somehow seen as something like magical, right? Because when you talk about people being born into something, it's like, well, you didn't have to work at this. It just sort of you're born to be Michael Jordan, right? You were born to be Prince, right? You were born to be whoever, right? Rather than, no, this is the same rigor, whether intellectual or emotional or physical or a combination of those things that created all these fucking yo-yos that you tell me are so important is the same shit that I have to do, right? So I want to kind of talk about the magicking of our experiences and our and our knowledge systems. You know, that's one of the, we talked about anger earlier, and I find that to be one of the most enraging conversations I, I have with folks, especially in academia, when there is this 
people people slip it in, you know, like educated people would say things like, you know, oh, you're you know, you're so talented in ways that take away the work, the dedication, the craft, right? Where this idea that who we are, yeah, it's it's magical, you know. There is this for those of us who are from the Caribbean, there is there's this whole tradition, for example, of surrounding Haiti as this magical source of you know blackness. You go there and you poof automatically know how to be black, right? Like this is just the site, the source, it's the mothership. There's a lot of that surrounding who we are and uh, as successful quote unquote professionals. While at the same time, that sort of predetermination, like biological BS, is also used against us, right? So like you cannot do this because you come from this people. And therefore, because you come from these people, you're also so special, right? So it's 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 really, you know, it, it derives from scientific racism. You know, it, it continues to come from the same sort of logic of like measuring your cranium, you know, that it's another version of it. And that it gets wrapped up with, you know, stereotypes and popular media productions around our peoples, right? So it's it's really just convoluted and, and difficult. But at the end of the day, it is about taking away the fact that the work we do is rigorous. And it doesn't just come easily. I had an experience with uh, a scholar who said to me, and I don't think he meant to be that insulting, but he said to me, I was I started my, my PhD in uh, medieval literature and I'm I'm going to switch to Latinx studies because it's easier. And so, you know, I want to finish my PhD far, uh, faster, so it, that's easier. And, you know, I looked at him and, and there was so much rage. There was so much I wanted to say that I had to just kind of leave the room and breathe. Because the assumption is that, you know, the, the work we do and, and how we do it, it just comes natural. You know, like I just like I get up and write a book. I don't spend 10 years in an archive looking at documents. That, that doesn't happen, right? It just comes naturally. And because I write about Dominicans, therefore, I just know this is just like, you know, things that I know rather than things that I worked on, that I studied, that, that, that I had to work harder, in fact, because I knew of, of the critique that would come from, from multiple places. It's really enraging and it's, and it's really hard to fight it. And at the same time, it's one of those fights that I personally don't take on because it's, it's so time consuming and exhausting. And I have so many other fights that I wanna turn to. There's very little that I can do or want to do to convince people that the work I do has value, it's worth it, and it comes from from a, a place of dedication and and working my craft for years. It's funny because I've I've used this analogy on the show before that nothing shows me how limited so-called smart people's knowledge is than watching like quiz shows. <laughs> if you watch like Jeopardy or any show that's like kind of like a trivia show, The Chase, any of these kind of shows which require so-called smart people to answer questions. If there's anything that has to do with like people of color, black people, um, Latino people, anything like that, they never know these answers. They don't know. <laughs> right. And it could be if it's not a super easy question, like where the answer is going to be like Rosa Parks. Harriet Tubman or Martin Luther King, those are kind of like the three. They have no fucking clue. And 
I love because this happened in, in a recent episode of Jeopardy where there was like some question that was like pretty basic. <laughs> and this person who had just been rattling off answer after answer on the most obscure bullshit, <laughs> like 17th century Tibetan monks, and they run the category. And then they fall into a question that has to do with Black people in America, in an American show. And they're like, I don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it just, it just always, it always makes me laugh. I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time because I, I want to, I'm going to skip off the dome because we've covered so much stuff. I am going to do the drop. But before I get to the drop, I want to ask you, you know, we're in a political and academic environment where we're seeing Again, I'm, I'm dramatic with my analogies, like a Reconstruction era light pushback on all things having to do with studying, understanding, being a part of building something better. And you're seeing it in, in business environments, you're seeing it in academic environments. I'm sitting in, in Florida, probably ground zero in terms of a popular figure like terrible Ron DeSantis pushing back against educating us on the real way in which we are entangled and the legacy of what this country is all about. And as I was reading your book, it seems like these two things are meeting a moment, right? Those aligned against us are more organized than ever. And all of us on this other side, wherever we might live, need each other more than ever, <laughs> right? So how do we meet each other in this moment? You know, because as we as we head toward 2024, people might call them culture wars as if they don't matter, but they do matter, right? And the the right and the conservative project has been focused on this for decades, right? The same decades that they've been talking about ethnic studies, mm -hmm. they've been talking about how to get rid of them. And I think they're better at it, <laughs> to be quite honest. So thoughts <laughs> before we get to the drop. That is, you know, the... The scariest thing is how organized the extreme right has been for quite some time now, not just in the U.S., but in other parts of the world. You know, they, they know their shit. You know, they have their list. They are very disciplined and they are all, they have one mind, right? And I think the challenge for us is figuring out how to organize that well. You know, how do we organize the contrast uh, this violence and to and to do the work that we want to do together while putting aside our differences for the greater good. I think that on sort of the left, for to call it something, we tend to be less not as good at <laughs> at this, right? We spend quite a bit of time arguing with each other about things that matter, but not quite as much as our livelihood and our sustenance and our future and the future of those that come after us. So to me, we, we really need to be really intentional in understanding that we are in a really seriously critical moment that can actually be quite productive. I, maybe because I'm, I'm quite optimistic as a person, you might not show, but I am. And I am convinced that all of, all of this that we're seeing is because there is great fear of the potential, you know? There is great fear of what can finally happen. I truly believe that we're on the verge of some really important changes in our society because we have a critical mass of folks that think that it is actually really important for everyone, every person, every human being to deserve dignity and, and to be treated equally 
I, I think that there's a lot of us that feel this way. And I think there's way more awareness in, in this sort of, I, I work with dumb people, right? I, I teach college. So I see what 20 year olds are thinking and they're, they're really concerned about the environment. They're really concerned about, about equality. They're really concerned about racism. They are really thinking in those terms more so than four and eight years ago. I see that the pandemic really crystallized that for so many people. And what we have is, is you know, those in power, those who want to sustain uh, the, the white supremacist systems that benefit them, really doubling down and attacking precisely those of us who are trying to really change the system. So I think what, what, what we really, really need to, to do is not, not lose sight of what is most important even as we have our differences, come together for the things that matter. And what matters right now is the future of our humanity. It really is. You know, this is that serious and is that critical. And this is the moment. And I think we need to really seize it and put aside all our sort of pettiness and differences and, and different ways of doing things and just come together, not just for a national election, you know, but also for public debates. If there is anything good that is happening right now with all these, you know, clowns like the Santis uh, doing what they're doing is that there are public debates about academia. For the first time in my life, people like in the news, people are talking about ethnic studies and black studies. And I, I think that's, that could be good. That could be a good thing that could lead us to some really important structural changes. And we need to seize that and, and do good with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I can't promise I'm as optimistic as a, as a person. I'm kind of a Daria type myself, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, <laughs> I, I, I do believe that they are in the position they are, as you so accurately said, because they know that their time is coming. <laughs> and, you know, we're in a, a long, a long tail fight, but I, I do believe that that the inevitability of their demise is is there. I don't know if I'll see it, but maybe I might, right? People didn't see Obama. And as imperfect as he was, that shook up the world. Yep. <laughs> right? Yep. <laughs> and nobody saw that coming. Absolutely. So we just got to do the work, though. We got to do the work. <laughs> so I, I want to get us into the, the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our listeners, despite our very important and deep conversation. My drop is actually quite frivolous. It's um, it's a, it's a Netflix show called Physical 100. And it's a, it's a Korean show. And it's just a hundred people that are like exceptional, like physical specimens that like compete <laughs> at, at all these like grueling, grueling things. And I, I got sucked into the show because as a culture person, I was like, some Korean producers sat down and saw the success of Squid Games and said, what if I create kind of a Squid Games type of arena competition, but in physical fitness? So that sort of like connection was really interesting to me. Then the other piece that I found interesting was that everybody was really supportive and polite, even as they went through this competition. So I'm not trying to stereotype into this idea that all Asian people are polite, right? But I did think that if this was an American show, 
with like American people in it, it would have went down a lot differently <laughs> as, <laughs> as a reality show. Because um, I, I was thinking to myself, if this was an American thing, I wouldn't watch it because I hate that sort of extra machismo bullshit of American athletics. That's just gross to me. I don't watch football anymore. Like I just hate all that shit. But this this Korean um, show was, I don't know, it was kind of inspiring because everybody was really like cool. <laughs> so physical 101 is is my drop and you're up. I'm going to be, I know what to watch tonight. So looking forward to that. <laughs> so I read a lot and uh, there's, there's a book that came out recently by Javier Zamora. It's called Solito. And it's told from the perspective of this uh, nine-year-old boy who eventually migrates by, by himself, so it's in Spanish means by yourself, to the U.S. And it is just, first of all, it's, it's, a be, it's just so beautifully written. But it's also one of those books that you sit down and you can't put it down. You know, it's like you want to know what happens next. You want to know how it's told next. And... There's been, you know, we've, we've gone through a decade of debates of the U.S.-Mexico border and what is happening with, with child uh, migration and putting babies in cages and all of that. And I, and I just feel like this, this beautiful story humanizes all of that and just gives us a glimpse of, like, what is it like for a child uh, to migrate by himself? And what are, you know, how is that process and what is, what is left behind and what is, what, what is he traveling for and on all of that? It is, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous book. I highly recommend it. I, I read it over, um, over the winter break and I'm in love. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to definitely check that out. It is borders are as, as again, immigrant family who did not have that sort of journey. You know, like a lot of times when I tell people like, oh, my family, they're immigrants. They're like, oh my God, what was it like? I'm like. They bought a ticket on Pan Am, right? Like <laughs> they f- flew in to, to JFK, right? It wasn't yeah. that dramatic. But the idea of, of moving on our borders is such an issue. And unfortunately, both forms of leadership, Republican and Democrat, fail miserably at it. Um, Democrats, because they are weak and afraid to fight for people's dignity and Republicans just because they are. Um, so. <laughs> Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so with, with that, um, Dr. Lorger Garcia-Pena, I want to thank you so much for being on the deep dive. Like I said, this is a, a conversation that I had circled and underlined, and it did, did not disappoint me. And we barely scratched the surface of the thoughtfulness and the scope of your work, um, which I hope will lead for you coming back on the show to have another conversation. But I, I want to thank you for coming on this time and, and being in conversation with me. Thank you for inviting me. I, I had a blast. This was a lovely conversation. I feel like I know you. I felt like I was talking to a friend. It was it was beautiful and I'll be happy to come back. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold I'm gonna hold you to that. So your assistant's gonna be hearing from me like in like the end of the year when I'm like, <laughs> did we make it? <laughs> did we survive the year? Um, but thanks so much again for being on the show. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. 
If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.